0: This is the thing I get told. God, you're so lucky. My mother sends it all the time. You've got the luck of the devil. No, I work fucking hard, and you create your own luck. And that's that's entrepreneurship. It's you take those risks, and they're risks, but they're, they're and they're possibly not calculated risks. But you're ta- you've taken a risk, and that risk pays off.
1: That's Joanna Jensen, the founder and former CEO of Child's Farm, a baby and child skincare brand. The company began at home after Joanna grew frustrated with the lack of choice for her young daughter's sensitive eczema-prone skin. So she started to make her own products. When those worked, she got a thousand bottles made and went up and down the country selling them at trade fairs, country shows, anywhere she thought potential customers might be. She was relentless in growing her business. They got their first listings in Boots in 2014, and then two years later, the brand blew up. They went viral after customers started posting before and after photos of their children's sensitive skin. They went viral again the year after, and by 2019, their sales exceeded Johnson & Johnson in the UK. In March 2022, the company was sold for £40 million to P.Z. Cussons. Quite an incredible thing for someone who started out making body lotion in a freezing cold barn. I think you'll learn a lot from Joanna. I think you're gonna like her. She is genuinely inspiring. Wait till you hear what she's actually come up against. The grind she put in to grow the brand and the resilience she had to have is remarkable. But she also experienced what happens when you push yourself too hard. This is Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray Surter.
0: I was born in nineteen seventy, and my mum was a divorcee she got divorced when I was 18 months which in the 70s was unheard of it was I mean she was dropped like a hot coal socially nobody wanted to have anything to do with a divorcee and she had trained as a nurse and because we were little she wanted to look after us she retrained as a health visitor um, so she could look after us and work part-time at the same time Um, but it was a bit of a shock for her And money was very, very, very tight. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, it's hard to believe that when I talk to you in my tone of voice and with my accent, we were kids on free school meals. And, you know, we you know, I went through public school later through scholarships and bursaries. But it was times were really tough for mum and people didn't really they didn't really help her that much, my grandparents were amazing, but at the same time, they wanted her to step on her own two feet. So she had us two young girls trying to work at the same time. We had this very sort of hippie lifestyle, if you like, where you grew your own stuff, you're at your own stuff, but it was fairly typical at that time. So in our household, sustainability wasn't something you talked about, you just lived and breathed it. And when it came to skincare, you used as natural products as humanly possible. And even though mum worked for the NHS, she was a great believer in alternative remedies. And so my asthma and eczema as a child was treated homeopathically. Um, and it was, you know, something that stuck with me for the whole of my life. But mum bringing up two girls at a time when she was really isolated as a divorcee made her absolutely determined that we were never going to be made to feel uncomfortable in anything that we did so she filled us with confidence. She told us we could do anything that we wanted to do. She was hugely ambitious for us. So it was that sort of mentality. And, and mum's attitude towards things was, you know, just let them go with it. And if it goes wrong, give them a bollocking. But, you know, nine times out of ten, it's not going to go wrong. So going to into a school environment that was really restrictive for me, I just naturally punched against it which I think just dictated the rest of my life. Um, because if anyone said, no, you can't do it, no, you shouldn't do it, you're not allowed to do it. I mean, it, it, it just never say that to me because I will automatically turn around and do exactly what you've told me that I shouldn't do. You know, and, I, and interestingly enough, when I was at school, I was told I had no respect for male authority. But I didn't have any male authority in my home life, none at all. You know, it was all women.
1: But do you think that's true? Regardless of the, regardless of, the, of, of how it could be true, do you think that that's perhaps true in an interesting manifestation of, of reality?
0: I think I was very angry with men. I think I was very angry with my father for having left us and humiliated us. Um, and, and when you'd go to school things and there'd be a whole family there, um, that was, you know, that was wonderful. You know, a mum, a dad, a brother, a sister. I mean, it was just kind of right. this is what this is what real life is like. And I think there was a lot of resentment, a lot of resentment. And My grandfather was very present in my upbringing, but he was of that generation. I mean, he had, he, he had fought in the war and he was of that generation where, you know, if you dared try, you know, if you dared cry, you'd be told to leave the room and compose yourself. Um, come back when you were composed so it's just a very different generation Um, but yeah I I think you know to me I think I give a tougher gig to men than I do to women because I think men have got to show that they're better than women in my mind
1: Mm. interesting and you think that you still do that
0: I think to to a lesser extent, I've I've had men in my life now that I am hugely respectful of, but I still feel that men progress within organisations much higher than they their capabilities allow. And and women don't necessarily have that same right because for whatever reason, you know, she could go off and have a baby. She you know, you know, she's not gonna stick around. There is still this bias towards men, which I think is is Totally unfounded.
1: I think the other things that get talked about a lot here is men have, this is obviously big generalizations, but they do tend to be based on a lot of truth because a lot of people agree with it, including myself. Men are just more confident at overplaying their hand and their, their capabilities, which as an employer, which I am, it's pretty annoying. Because <laughs> you're like, wow, that person sounds amazing. And they come and join and they're, they're not that great. But women don't do that. No. So women tend to downplay their qualities. And so this also happens therefore in job applications. Yeah. And also, you know, internal job applications, you know, when you're in bigger companies, you find more men going for the bigger roles than than women because men assume that they could definitely do that role, and women don't just assume that. They feel like they definitely have to earn it and know that they're absolutely at the level capable of doing it already. Certainly am I Hiring experience, I've hired almost a hundred people. Very commonly, women do outperform the men, but don't necessarily make it clear that they're definitely going to do that. You know, the the sales pitch during an interview process isn't much of a sales pitch at all. It's more of a based in reality of what they know to be true. Whereas men, it's definitely far more confident in my experience. It's definitely um, a lot more salesy.
0: Yeah, and then you get down to brass tacks. And it's all smoke and mirrors or largely smoke and mirrors. I have to say when, you know, with Child's Farm, we were well over 70% female and a lot of part-time women um, who were mums, working mums. And to me, they wanted it more. They were more passionate. They, they had that desire. And, And the guys we had working for us were brilliant, but there was a, you know, I mean, it's just salesy bullshit, isn't it? Look at me, I'm brilliant, I'm marvellous, I'm fantastic, I can do this job standing on my head. And then three months in, and it's not really panning out as their sales pitch said to them, but any woman would outperform largely, I mean, again, this is a massive generalisation, I'd find that most women would outperform their crib sheet.
1: You become an investment banker. A very successful one, as I understand it. And then what? Where does where does where does your life go from leaving investment banking? Why did you leave investment banking, and how does that relate to starting a company?
0: I left invest, investment banking to have my children because I had Mimi, my eldest, when I was thirty six. So I was a bit late to the game, and I took a time out, and then I had. Bella in 2008. And of course, the world went to hell in a handbasket. My now ex-husband was an investment banker too, got the biggest investment that we had totally wrong and didn't sell it. And I sold my bit, he didn't sell his bit. It absolutely crucified us. And so all those many, many years of hard work, blood, sweat and tears was literally lost in, in a matter of hours. Um, as the whole banking crisis hit and collapsed around us. And so I had to turn my hand to doing anything to keep the coal fires burning. Um, I started doing b in our house. We had a big barn, so I cleaned that out and I started doing weddings and parties. And at the same time, I was dealing with a, a, a new baby that had really, really sensitive skin. And... Little Bells had atopic eczema. She was allergic to absolutely everything. Um, it was a total nightmare. And I couldn't find anything that soothed her skin. Now, I'd had atopic eczema in the 70s. Nothing had moved on. It was either emollients that sat on your skin or steroids, hydrocortisone that just thinned your skin. And I wasn't putting either of those things anywhere near my beautiful bouncing baby But she had, you know, real irritation in the creases of her arms and her legs and round where her nappy was was just, I mean, it was so red, raw and bleeding. And as a parent, as you know, Dan, you would do anything to keep your little ones happy. And you get this burden of guilt that, you know, I got the burden of guilt. I gave her eczema. It was my poorly skin that had been passed on down to her. You know, I couldn't find anything to do it. So I started making my own solutions for her using natural origin ingredients and ingredients that, you know, Egyptians had used for years. Um, Ancient Egyptians had used shared butter on their skin.
1: But why? Uh, I wouldn't do that. Like I would I appreciate sure I'd look in the market and be like, OK, I don't like what's out there, but. 99% of people aren't going to be like, well, the Egyptians use this. I could just do what the Egyptians and the Egyptians fucking mummified people. So, you know, I might have wrapped her and stuff. Yeah, what possesses you to think think this way and do these things?
0: So when, when I was investment banking and I was traveling all over the world, my first port of call would always be a local pharmacy because I wanted to see what was there. And I had this sense of smell. You know, I could smell something wrong with one of our f- formulas, it ended up going on for months and they all accused me of being completely bloody minded and very very difficult until we brought in a producer and they said no there was acid rain in Nigeria when that crop was being harvested and that's what's caused that alteration in the fragrance and it was kind of ha, ha you know <laughs> and actually peter took me my ex-husband took me to we went down to babington house And I was looking at all the cow shed stuff. And I said, why is it that that everything for adults looks really nice packaging? It's really fun. And stuff for kids is just shit and medicinal looking. And Mm. he said, well, if you think you can do any better, do it yourself. And Mm. it goes back to what I said right at the beginning, Mm. which is you tell me no, or you can't do it. I will just flick 70 V signs at you and I will bloody well make it so. So a, a completely bloody mindedness. But also I'm looking at my my babe and I'm thinking I can't tolerate this. I can't stand by and watch her in so much pain. And so, yes, and, and not forgetting though, I was with all the sort of hippiederm of my childhood, you know, and all the stuff that we did then, I was fascinated by home brews, if you like, And I would be, you know, we made, you know, cough mixture and, you know, rose water and all that sort of junk when we were
1: kids. So it's interesting. You have a bit of a superpower. You have a bit of a reason why, right? You have an edge as to why this actually does make sense for you to solve this problem. So talk to me a little bit about the creation process. Like, where were you? Because you also talked about, you know, you were going through a divorce at the time.
0: Yeah, I was in, I was in our house in Hampshire and I, I sort of literally was doing it at the kitchen table and getting ingredients and pulling them together. And then somebody introduced me to a chap called Tom Allsworth, who, um, at the time ran a manufacturing facility down in Kent and he and I met up at a little chef on the 303 and, um, and I said, this is what I'm trying to do. I'm looking for someone who can create these formulas with me. I'm very clear about the ingredients I want to include, but I'm very clear about those ingredients I want to avoid. And he looked at everything that i had done and he said, yeah, I think we can help you on this. And his, his R&D team led by a wonderful woman called Maxine Scanlon, they created the formulas in the first hit. We, we sat down, we talked through everything I wanted, what I didn't want. They got a bit funny about some of my fragrances, but I said, they all remind you of things. You know, tangerine reminds you of Christmas stockings. Strawberry and mint is an English summer. You know, blackberry and apple is autumn, you know, rich pickings. And so we worked together and we created those formulas because, A, the formula had to work on sensitive necks, my prone skin without a shadow of a doubt. But as a child, I'd never been allowed a bubble bath. I'd never been allowed anything fragranced. So I wanted my children to be able to have a bubble bath, but proper bubbles, not, you know, sort of pseudo bubbles. And I also wanted things to smell fabulous because fragrance to me is a real mood changer. And, you know, get it right and it can make you smile. And then the one thing, of course, is when you you looked at all the products for children, who had issues with their skin? They were blue and white or green and cream and they looked boring. They looked medicinal. And yet, any other kid could have Disney princess or matey or, you know, cars. There was a whole plethora of fun shit. But if you had sensitive skin, you couldn't go anywhere near that stuff. So I wanted to make it fun. So every bottle had a different colored lid and all the images were my children their animals on our farm having fun but doing potty things you know like the shampoo's got a, a pony with its hair in rollers and the rider sitting next to a little bella sitting there with her hair in rollers too it was all meant to be a lot of fun and really engaging so bath time could become really fun but you got out of that bath and your skin was moisturized it was glowing You were not in pain. You know, anywhere where you had owie bits, they were fine, and that to me was the biggest. You know, I did everything for Bella, and because it worked for her, I realised it would work for every other mother. And the one in five under fives has atopic eczema in this country.
1: You've got the right skills to understand business opportunity and the kind of investment that's required to go into creating something. You've got some data and insight now, the one in five. So actually quite a big market opportunity if you can figure out your positioning. And you've obviously got the product chops as well to be developing your own product. Talk to me about how you go from this um, idea. So you've created something for Bella to your first customers how did you get there
0: I hired a transit van I had a thousand bottles made of five different skews, and I did school fairs I did trade fairs country shows I mean my first ever trade fair was an equestrian fair because it's the only one I'd heard of um and then found out, got on this cycle of flogging up and down motorways endlessly, getting out all my kits, setting it all up, you know, feeling like a dolly with a piece of string in your back because I was having the same conversation, you know, 150 times a day, selling my wares. I was a good old fashioned, you know, tradeswoman, um, flogging my stuff to an audience that had never seen anything like this with this within this category you know it was a it was a crusty dusty dinosaur of a category and I'd come in and I'd made it fun I'd made it fragrant and I'd made it suitable for everyone and people loved it you know getting listings is hard work but I was just absolutely relentless and I would deposit them by hand. I would chat up the people on the reception desks and sort of saying, you know, who's the buyer for this? And here, I have some hand cream and and it worked. And then sort of the word got around. But when we did get our first social media viral post in 2016, and this was on Facebook before it had monetized things, we were completely taken by surprise you know, it was so exciting at one stage. I was down in Cornwall with, with family. And every time we did a £1,000 on the website, we were having a shot. Well, then I suddenly thought, shit, we've done £20,000 worth of, 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 of product. We A, we don't have this stock. And B, we don't have enough people in the warehouse to ship this out. So that happened. And then we had a year later, almost to the day, we had another viral post. But what we didn't do for that whole period of time was any marketing at all. Because what was the point? You know, we'd gone completely viral and, you know, we couldn't make this stuff quick enough. We couldn't have sold any more. And what was the point in spending money to try and sell some more when we don't have any, anyhow? So we really went through a two year period where all we were doing was um, giving out samples allowing our consumers to tell our story for us. So as we came out of this in 2018, well, so we then said, right, well, we've got to get down and dirty with social media. Of course, Facebook had monetized their algorithms by then. And we were just getting into our stride, COVID. And suddenly everything had to go digital. And in that time as well, we'd gone from a team of 25 to a team of 50. And it was a big learning because for a small business to really be productive, in my view, everyone needs to be stretched. Everyone needs to be committed and everyone needs to be stretched. This isn't a big business where, you know, you can go off and, have a full hour for lunch and then do an early Pilates class. When you're an SME and you're in growth and there's a lot to play for, you want people in it to win it. And again, you know, when you're hiring people in who I found were FMCG experts, they'd done it for however long. They'd done it within an organization that had an agency that did this, an agency that did that. There was an octopus of people. I always sort of said they were like an octopus. They were the body and they had loads of agencies who are the tentacles. When you're running an SME, you are the agencies. You know, you are jack of all trades. You give everything a go once. And, you know, if it doesn't work, it doesn't matter. No one cares. You've tried and you've gone at it and it says, sounds sensible and we've all said, yeah, go for it. It doesn't work. It doesn't matter. It's fine to fail. It's fine to fail. It's not fine to... Then say, oh, that wasn't failure, when it clearly was, and try to bullshit your way out of it. I don't know if you've had it. I interviewed so many people who would say, I'm just desperate to work in a small business. I've worked in a big corporate all of my life, and I know I'm just I'm 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 just being held back from my brilliance. And they couldn't cope with the lack of structure, the you know, the self-reliance that's required in an SME. Mm.
1: I think it's great that people try to like dare to do something totally different, and then have the self awareness that actually I'm glad I tried, but this isn't for me. I'm going to move on again.
0: Yeah, but sometimes they don't have that self awareness, and that's the problem, Dan. And you know, when you are running a tight ship, they've got to, you, you get to, you've got to fail fast.
1: Yes, that's fair.
0: It's a different touch in an SME, and some people flourish, some people you know get along really nicely, and some people just feel desperately uncomfortable in it. And not forgetting as well as your business grows, there are people that will get you to 5 million, but they might not get you to 10. They might not get you to 15. They might not get you to 20. People have their own limits. And and the other thing as a founder, which you have to remember, which I forgot a lot, is that we're a different breed. You know, we work at a thousand miles an hour. We don't care if we work seven days a week. We don't care if we work 20 hours a day. We don't care if we live off Haribos for two days to get something done. That's how we are wired. Now, everyone else is not wired like that.
1: Yes, and we do definitely convince ourselves that other people should, which is a silly reality.
0: And we think everybody's exactly the same as us. Yeah. And they're not. And people have limits. And and I know that I'm super, super, super resilient. And I can keep going and keep going and keep going. But I'm very unusual. And there were times when I expected the same from some of my team and they just would not wild like me at all, at all. So I would have to make myself, when I walked into the office, someone walked into my office, I would have to say, hello, how are you? Because my natural response would be, we need to work on this thing. Can mm. Can you do, can you? Can we sit down this morning? Because my mind was... Going at a million miles an hour. And I had to, I had to mentally make myself step back and stop and talk to them in a way that would get the best out of them. Now I can tell you, I wasn't, I wasn't an Olympic standard of this by any stretch of the imagination. But that communication between you and all your direct reports and understanding how to get the best out of each other is so vitally important it will save a lot of aggro in the short and the long run. And hopefully it gives people a little bit more insight and a bit more humanity in the fact that, you know, you're not a robot, you're not a robotron, you're not completely emotionless. You're just actually incredibly focused on what you're doing.
1: Mm. And how did you get to to scale? So... Obviously, as an investment banker, you might have had a different idea about how one raises money to the actual reality and the the grit of um, I, I'm I'm imagining this is you know asking people for tens of thousands of pounds tends to be very different to asking people for tens of millions of pounds. At investment banking, you learn how much money the world really has, and in startup land, it feels like no one actually has any money. So, did you have this kind of experience as well? This sort of surprise and awareness of of what money looks like in the two different worlds.
0: Yeah, I was I was really surprised how reluctant people were to part with that cash. I thought it would be a much easier journey. I thought I was quite compelling. You know, my story was quite compelling. And the first round, I, I luckily in 2013, I stumbled along an extended family who had a capital gain to pay. And so they invested in Child's Farm under SEIS and EIS to offset that but it wasn't enough money. You burn through cash at a rate that's, and you get your listings, but you've got to get the stock for your listings. And that means, you know, and you've got to know that you've got that stock for however long. So you're burning through cash. And then I bought my second round of investment in in 2014. Now this was when it was meant to be an investor who was putting in an awful lot of money and it was a proper VC round. And they pulled out four days.
1: Before What is what is a proper amount of money?
0: Three million quid.
1: Well, so they pulled out three million quid a few days just before you were going live in Boots. It did
0: four days before we'd agreed to do it. And and I was literally, we'd sold our house. I had enough money to pay the rent on our rented house for a year. Um, I was, unbeknown to me, really not very well at the time as well, um but it all sort of happened at once and you know I I actually was told over the phone that they were pulling out so I just got in the car drove to the station got on a train to London and knocked on their door and said you've got to talk to me and actually they behaved appallingly badly as well and um got a call with boots because of course boots were thinking this was all going ahead and that would be fine and you know the listing was you know all good to go got on the call, and the first thing they said was, yeah, we've decided to pull this investment out and Joanna's got no money, so I'm not sure what you want to do about the listing, but I suggest you see her because you probably want to pull it. And I was sitting there and I was thinking, what? You complete asshole!" So I drove up to Boots first thing the Monday morning, thinking basically the entire journey, I'm fucked. Got there and the category director... An uh, uh, amazing man, Jamie Karouche, had got a collection of people in the room and said, I love your brand. I believe in your brand. I believe in you. Here is everyone I could think of who could be able to help you. What do you need? Do you need some money from us? What do you need? What What can we do to make this happen? And I mean, how I just didn't break down into a sobbing mess of sobbingness, I don't know. But I kept my stiff upper lip on and I said, you know, you are amazing. And then bowls of steel. I said, oh, no, it's fine. I'll find the money. Because I thought, I don't want a retailer's money in my, in my business. That's just going to curtail my, what I can do going forward. So I just said, no, I'm fine. I'll, I'll find the money. And I did. And I found the money three weeks later. Through a, a broker, an angel investor broker, introduced me to Andrew Leake who brought in family and friends. And that was an investment of about 750000 which is what we needed. And, and also, you know, I made a friend for life, you know, with Andrew as well. And, and, you know, he was a proper investor. You know, he was ex-private equity, but he rolled up his sleeves. He got stuck in. He acted as a COO, set up our Irish business. He was proper grafter. That's
1: a lot more than you would have got out of a VC, by the way. I'm sure you're well aware.
0: Oh, I, I, and and yeah, well, you see, I'm, I, I mean, I hate to say it, but I'm, I'm pretty tarred by the VC brush, and and actually, in the work that that I do now, which is to do with a lot of work I do with female founders, VCs have got to watch their backs because their reputation is pretty filthy out there.
1: Yeah, I don't do a great job on this podcast uh, making it any better, as uh, our listeners know.
0: I've had women who have. Being told that they're getting investment and it's never materialised, so they've stopped their fundraising activity. And then what they have received is a fraction of what they've committed to. I've had two highly talented and brilliant women I know who make condoms. They've been in a VC meeting and they've been asked to show them how to put them on. I mean,
1: it is that is so completely absurd, though.
0: I mean, VCs out there, clean up your goddamn acts. And there are some very good VCs out there, but, you know, there are some real shockers out there and everyone is being tarred by their the shockers brush.
1: So a few things I want to reflect on just quickly. I agree, by the way. And, uh, and there are some good VCs out there, but they're few and far between for sure. But some things I want to reflect on. One of them, I think, you know, to your relationship with men. That must have been a really interesting time. I'm going to just assume that the VCs that turned you down and fucked you over were men, but then so was your guardian angel that turned up a week later and got everyone together was a man. And I wonder if your personal disposition towards men in the back of your mind was, was, was swinging a lot in this time, right? Because, you know, you've already expressed that you do have some psychological trauma towards men, which is massively understandable, but here are some very serious disappointment and also serious surprise and wonderment coming in the form of essentially a guardian angel i wonder how reflecting on that you know if, if if you can remember if it made you think or stop or you were just too in the moment to even give it consideration
0: do you know Andrew was a different ball game he is highly intelligent he's kind he wears his heart on his sleeve He's not a risk taker, but there was no bullshit there. You know, even the, the the VC that was going to invest. Oh my god, it was just telling me how fucking brilliant he was, all the careers he had had. You know, claiming he had launched this brand, that brand, and you know, I knew people that worked for and of his generation. They're going, oh, he's just such an asshole.
1: Yeah, but he'd sent he'd sent them an email once, so he'd basically built their brands. <laughs>
0: You know, that there are many different types of men, but in, in, in our industry, they're either honest, gorgeous, really, you know, get it, feel your pain and are understated. Or the big swinging dicks that just have to tell you that how big their dick is every time they see you, every time they see you. They literally are slapping it out on the table. And we call them the Daxon dicks because they've got dicks the size of Daxon's. But they just don't know it yet because in their eyes, an inch is a foot.
1: (laughs) Very good. Um, Moving this along smoothly, if you don't mind, um, (laughs) I'm, I'm interested also in what were you thinking in that Boots meeting? For you to sit there and turn away the money because you know it's not good for the long term is a very brave decision. And so I want to know like how you were, how you were feeling about that at the time, you know, did you walk back out and think, holy shit, maybe I should have taken a breath and said yes or no?
0: Do you know, no, I knew absolutely a hundred percent. All I was concerned about, I was going to lose the listing. I had, you know, I had so much belief in that brand and I thought I will find this money even if I have to steal it. And actually Tom, who was doing my manufacture said, don't worry about paying me, you know, I'll bankroll you. I'll pay for your cartoon. I will bankroll you for all of your stock. I'm with you. You know, he was on a plane when I phoned him, you know, sort of in those sobbing moments. I I could barely talk. I'm so upset. He said, literally, I'm on a plane to Chicago. And he said, give me five minutes. This is important, (laughs) obviously, to the stewardess. And he said, I'll look after you. So that gave me more confidence. But also, just by virtue of their saying, you know, someone... Of that caliber turns around and says, We love your brand, we believe in your brand, and we believe in you. You're invincible. You have suddenly, your confidence has just gone through the roof because you know, if you know this, the biggest health and beauty player in the UK is saying, We back your brand, you've got the confidence to go out there. And of course, I flogged that to death mm. and sort of said, Oh, you know, boots want to invest, but I just don't think that's right.
1: Yeah, okay. Yeah, so you're able to turn it into a narrative. And actually, you know, this is a really important thing as well for brands, right, is understanding the narrative that you're using to your uh, your advantage, no matter who you're speaking to. Um, A lot of founders do risk everything. They put everything on the line. They compromise it all. And often that means their health. And they behave stupidly, Uh, frankly. I've had a lot of this myself. I caused myself burnout. I've had insomnia. Lots of my own mental health problems and challenges came by my own fault um and not really understanding the lines of uh of, of where to stop yours is slightly different yours are real serious uh near death experiences to a quite staggering degree and it's rare to meet someone who survived one let alone two <laughs> um i really want you to share the the thread of your story as a mom of two going through these health journeys and a divorce all through whilst running this business cuz The number one thing that I talk about on this podcast and encourage a discussion with guests is resilience. You'll be pleased to know because it seems to be your hot topic too. What was it like to go through the last 10 years of your life?
0: Exhausting. Utterly, utterly, utterly exhausting. 2014 was a shit year. The investor pulled out. um, We lost our home. I moved into rented accommodation that I had to do using a horse box every night to do everything because I couldn't afford a mover. Um the girls were really unsettled. Um, they were quite little, but they were a bit unsettled, but their father hadn't really been around. You know, it was change, and you're little, you don't get it. And my ex-husband decided to take me to court because, like Boots, he realised that I had created quite a good brand and this is bearing in mind we hadn't done anything at this stage and I was in this courtroom and I was in I'd been in quite a lot of pain in in my stomach for a couple of months but you know I'd just occasionally pop a paracetamol and think nothing of it and I was in that room and I just it was all becoming too much and I sort of had a I just sort of had a moment and I thought I really don't feel very well and I started hyperventilating Blah, blah 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 it was the whole situation was awful anyhow we came out of this courtroom and you know it, it was a unha- it was an unhappy settlement um of nothing because we had nothing this was it was such a pointless exercise we had nothing all we had was this business which had no traction whatsoever and i i went home and i thought i really don't feel very well and i went to my local gp And it was a locum. And they said, oh, you've got IBS. And I said, really? Okay, but do you want to feel this big lump here? Oh, no, I don't need to feel this. I know. 48 hours later, I couldn't even stand up. So I I actually met Andrew for a meeting. And I said, do you mind if we get a taxi back from this? Because I've got to go to my GP in London. And he said, no, that's absolutely fine. I said, yeah, no, I'm just in a bit of pain. Went in and saw my GP who felt this enormous, great big lump. And he said, right, you're going straight for a scan. Went and had a scan and they came out and they said, you need to speak to your gynecologist as soon as possible. You urgently need an operation, which I duly did. And and I'd I'd always suffered from fibroids, which are sort of growths within your womb. And one had grown out of my womb and wrapped itself around my intestine and my, um, what's it called, your appendix. And it was dying. And when they die, they typically burst. And when it's in your womb, you know, at least it's controlled. When it's outside of your womb, that's the rest of your body. My guy, said, Oh, this is going to be so easy, Joanna. I do this all the time. Well, it took him, he thought it was going to be an hour's operation. It ended up taking him four and a half hours. And I came round and he said, he said, I'm so, so pleased you came in. You Probably had about 10 days before that thing would burst and you would have taken two paracetamol. You'd have gone to bed and you'd have never woken up. And if you had gone to hospital, they would have taken out everything because they'd have had to. And then was lying in bed, finishing off the documents for the the, the Andrew's investment because they hadn't been finished. I was actually in excruciatingly huge amounts of pain, but I just, you know, needs must and got on and did it and And that was fine, but these these same issues kept on coming back. and um I think it was two thousand and eighteen, and that was a bit of a double whammy because i I had cells that tested positive for cervical cancer. so went and had that dealt with. And then two weeks later was again in a huge amount of discomfort. and my fibroids had grown back and grown back, village, you know, like sort of monsters from the deep. And so I had to have an emergency hysterectomy. And I was one in 300,000 people that react to a gas that they put in your stomach um, when they're doing keyhole surgery. And I was down to five beats a minute. And all I remember is in the recovery room, they kept on hitting my feet. And I kept on saying, will you stop hitting my feet? Um, but it was it was touch and go for a lot of that time but it was you know that second one actually the 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 whole cervical cancer and then the hysterectomy it that for me was a real wake-up call
1: and what about the the business over this period as well so do you sound to me and tell me if this is a fair accusation because we don't know each other well enough yet Hmm. but you sound to me like someone who um Maybe struggles more with delegation because you are a jack of all trades and can do a lot. And so people like that are um, control freaks is a very intense word, but that's the vibe that I'm getting.
0: Mm. I think that's fair. I think that's fair.
1: Right. So what was it like to be in this medical situation where you're probably being told that you have to take some time off and you have to relax a little bit because your health is at stake and you are a mum and you know that your girls need you like how were you able to marry these different hats because it's, it's difficult when you're specifically told to do something especially based on what you've said earlier which is you ain't <laughs> being told what to do
0: <laughs> I know well Andrew was amazing as was uh, another Andrew Andrew Rayner who he, he was with the business for six years actually and he ran all my sales and and I just said and the 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 second operation I just said I've got to take a couple of days off Mm. and he said a couple of days you know I said he was he just said I've got it don't worry we've got it it's absolutely fine um and of course you know it goes back to rightly or wrongly I didn't tell the girls what was going on rightly or wrongly but I just thought
1: but they know they know you're in hospital surely right
0: um, no, they just thought I was doing something, you know, going, you know, because you're only in hospital
1: really oh. for a night, these things. God, you sound so English with this kind of. I know.
0: I'm I'm just listening to myself. I'm like something from another world.
1: Yeah, I'm listening to you. I don't even know you well enough to be giving you uh, advice. or, <laughs> But, you know, uh, this is like the most quintessentially English, we have American listeners, the most quintessentially stereotype English stiff upper lip stuff ever.
0: <laughs> totally well totally and now I mean you know it is but that, don't forget that's how I was brought up as
1: well sure that's absolutely fair but okay so let me ask you this what did it make you change have you reflected you know you talked about um you've talked about toughness you've talked about um you know maybe needing to slow down you've talked about taking your health more seriously like what did it really help you learn oh it it, it really told me up uh,
0: Front and personal, I'd done too much, and it was time to it was time to 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 move away from this because you know you know as well, and you alluded to it earlier we what's perfect what's perfect there is no there is no flaw to anything that that kind of that ceiling just is open and it keeps on going and it's never good enough, and it's never right enough, and it's never any of these things. But as my girls were growing up, I realised how much they needed me. Um, Sadly, my mother's got dementia and Alzheimer's, and I realised that she needed me more. And and life is about living. And I can sit here in my bloody-minded British world and say, I can do this because. Or I can just say, do you know, I've done it. I've done it. I don't. I've got nothing to prove. Who are you trying to prove this to? Because... All I was trying to prove was to myself, and I think probably my mother as well, that I can do this, that you can be proud of me, that I have achieved something, that I'm not a complete waste of space. And you know, at school, I was told the person least—I was the person least likely to succeed and most likely to end up in prison. You know, so it—it it, it was really an internal battle that I was having with myself, and I—and really, I. I suddenly realized, you know, you can end this battle. And I stood down as the CEO after that.
1: Talk to me a little bit about the exit. How did it come about?
0: Well, so I was quite determined. And I think my shareholders by this stage, some of them had been in with me for 10 years. Um, it was time. It was time for something to happen. And So we looked for private equity. We were absolutely convinced we were going to go down the private equity route. It hadn't even occurred to me to do a trade sale. And I just said to our corporate finance advisor, I said, have you looked at trade? And that's when we met PZ Cousins. And it just was a perfect fit. It was just one of those moments. So we then did our sort of, God, 25 interviews with private equity. I mean, you know, it, 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 it's, I mean, Will was brilliant. I mean, we were like a bit of a double axe, um, coked up with caffeine, you know. And um, and it got to final bids and there were three private equity firms and Pizzo Cousins. And the day that final offers came in was the day that Putin invaded Ukraine. And I'd already decided I wanted to go with PZ and so had my shareholders. So collectively, we'd spoken as a a group of investors to say that we wanted to go with PZ. I said, right, we have got to do this in three weeks. Nobody is going to bed. And my team, um, the lawyers and my corporate finance team and the child's farm team worked their butts off. And my God, they were utterly brilliant. And, you know, it's so weird. I, I keep on being asked surely it was hell on earth. We had such a laugh. We had such a laugh going through that process. And, you know, because I was an investment banker, so much of it had been done throughout the years. Anyhow, so it wasn't like suddenly I was having to gather up stuff together. We were pretty organized and the runes just landed in the right place. And we got the deal away before the end of the tax year. And what they did do, which is which is really, I think, useful for entrepreneurs out there is because we were looking to do a private equity deal, our corporate financier brokered the idea to PZ Cousins that they should offer me a private equity deal so I could still enjoy the growth of the business over the next three years. So we did that because PZ is a PLC, the most I could own was 10%. So my... I put in 8.5%, so I still retain 8.5% of the business, and I paid on a multiple calculation. And that means I get to enjoy further fruits of my labours, and that I've not just had to slam the door on everything. Um, I'm not operationally involved at all now. Um, they locked all the doors and threw away the keys. Um you know, it's their child. And, and you know, I've got to get over it. If I disagree with something, I've just got to suck it up because it's it's their child now. They've taken on parental duties.
1: Can you explain that a little bit? Because um, I think I understand it, but obviously it's a little bit jargony. So for some listeners who don't understand what that means, am I right in thinking to break it down? You sold the, uh, the brand for 40 million. Is that right? Or thereabouts? Yeah. And so what you're saying is you obviously would have had X percentage still as the founder, and then you were able to buy back in, but at the exit multiple that they bought at?
0: Exactly. I bought back in at that price, but it doesn't matter because the deal that I'm on is using a different number as a multiple of my investment. So in a private equity deal, what will typically happen is the founder or founders will take a sum of money off the table, but not all of it, they will remain invested. So they are truly invested in every way with that brand's performance going forward. And that's what PZ Cousins tried to match, that private equity approach. So I still have skin in the game. It's in my interest to ensure that this business continues to thrive. And I do get asked questions and my opinion and my thoughts, which is lovely, Um, but she's not my daughter anymore.
1: So what's it, what's it like going from a long career of hustle grind, you against the world mentality, certainly, you know, the right journey for you based on your upbringing and being told you can't do stuff and working against the odds and proving everyone wrong, but most importantly, proving to yourself something. Do you feel like, do you feel heard to yourself? Do you feel like you've, you're proud firstly, most importantly of yourself
0: I think I am proud of myself. I suffer from acute imposter syndrome. I don't, genuinely don't believe I've done anything earth shatteringly brilliant, but I'm really pleased with what I've done. I'm pleased that it's allowed me to take a breath and it's allowed me to, to, to be able to invest in my children's futures. It's allowed me to know that I'm all right. And I don't have to be fearful about any outcomes or getting it wrong. I've de-risked. I mean, I was so risk. I mean, my entire life was risk. And now I have considerably de-risked. And that's just made life a lot sweeter. I'm not working seven days a week. Are you bored? No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm keeping busy. Well, the girls are keeping me busy. Um, I'm Enjoying life, I'm involved with lots of other female founders through an initiative called Buy Women Built, uh, which is encouraging everyone to support women by buying female founded products. I'm talking to a lot of people um, about my journey, and I am putting my money where my mouth is, and I'm investing predominantly in female founders, but investing in businesses that A, I love, but B, I love the founder. Because don't underestimate how important that founder is. Because you are investing in the founder, and if they've got a good brand or good products, they've got to be brilliant too. Because they're going to ones that are going to, going to make it work or not make it work. It's the ones that are, you know, full of beans when they've had a shit awful day, are the ones that you want to back. Um, because they're the ones that are going to take, you know, this resilience is so important, not to my level, not to my English upper, you know, stiff upper lip, you know, somebody sawing your leg off and you sort of say, oh, I'll take an aspirin for that. Not to that level, but but there is balance. There is there is better balance. My, my balance was non-existent, but there is better balance. And I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to see that entrepreneurialism is thriving. I mean, my area of comfort is most definitely consumer brands. And I'm I'm seeing some absolute corkers out there, which are brilliant. And, you know, it's going to be a tough couple of years. It is going to be a tough couple of years. And my advice to anyone right now is no MPD. Stick to your hero products. Get behind them. Drive trial by whatever mean, shape or form that you can find. Check every single set of terms and conditions you've been asked to sign up. So you make sure you own your products until they've been paid for. So be, be absolutely ruthless. Just because somebody gives you a big order doesn't necessarily mean it's the right place for you to be. And check your EPOS and your rate of sale, um, because what you don't want to find is people are paying, placing really, really big orders because they don't need them in this climate, businesses do go bust, and you don't want to find that you've got a load of stock in one of them that has gone bust. So be calm, be focused, be centered, and focus on your heroes. Calm down on anything that's new and exciting. Everything can wait, but ride this storm. And, and, and you know, this is a test of everyone. Many people can sail in lovely, tranquil seas. But when it starts getting choppy, you know, that's when you, you find the brilliant people. And and this there's a generation now that have never had that choppiness. And that's why older people can be really helpful um, because they have seen it. And they do know that we'll come out of it. And yeah, the next 18 to 24 months are going to be a bit sticky. But keep your head up, keep breathing and keep believing.
1: My last question is usually, what's your best piece of advice? And I didn't even need to ask it because that was a (laughs) phenomenal way to end. So all I can say (laughs) is thank you for such an awesome interview, Joanna. I've loved it.
0: Oh, bless you, Dan. I've really enjoyed talking to you.
1: Joanna Jensen. What a conversation. I think her advice there at the end is so timely. Even when things are difficult, like right now, know that they will eventually come to an end. But also, remember that it is especially in times like these when you need to be aware of what's going on and take those hard decisions to get your business through the storm.
0: Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do.
1: Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips, and tricks.
0: Told by leading names in sport and beyond.
1: Who know what it takes to get to the very top.
0: There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow.
1: Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening to this episode of Secret Leaders. I hope you've enjoyed it. We're taking a break for a couple of weeks, but you'll still hear me in our Bite Size episodes and we'll be back with our full length episodes in March. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Surter. This episode was produced by Ruth Edwards and brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stollerman. See you next time.